Hi, everyone. Welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host. I'm here at the table with guys from GunBroker.com and from Go Wild. And today we're going to be talking about the military impact on the deer woods uh, and, and how military technology. Did they bomb it? Yes, carpet bombed it. All oh the man! Deer. Yeah, no. So, <laughs> so many deer, one yeah. shot. Yeah. What did you get that buck with, Daisy Cutter? Yeah, <laughs> napalm. Uh, yeah, it makes no. finding the right like game trail a lot easier when you just bomb the whole woods. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you can just see forever. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but no. Uh, on a on a more serious note, Brad, uh, we're we're going to talk about uh, how the, the there was an actual uh, impact uh, between the military industry and the hunting industry and one of the neat things we're going to tell you about is how world war ii aerial sites impacted shotgunning and bird hunting uh, right after world war ii so i just want to say no one brought me here to be serious that was not the preface so okay all right fair enough i'm here for dumb jokes and that's it okay <laughs> well that that works that works <laughs> he didn't bring the donuts so. he, no. he didn't bring the donuts so so brad will bring the dumb jokes and i need you guys to bring the subscriptions to the show Ooh, so well yeah so smash the like button subscribe on your favorite platform however you're enjoying us if you're looking at our faces that are built for radio or if you're just <laughs> listening in um you know we, we need you to subscribe on all those platforms so again welcome to the no ballers podcast guys where nothing is serious uh and we're talking hunting and military so one of the things we want to talk about is the impact in the optics industry and how things have changed and, and alan of course in your previous life you you dealt a lot with optics companies and evolution so so talk to us a little bit about some of the more modern history of the optics industry and what we've seen go on sure I, one of the the brands that's iconic in our in the hunting industry for you know almost 115 years now is Leupold. Um, some some of the best rifle scopes out there. Their origin comes from a, a failed hunt that you know the Fred said you know the hell with this I can make a better better scope than this and then he went out and did it. Uh, what people don't know as much about um, Leupold is their tactical optics side. Uh, for precision rifles for years, Leupold was the largest provider of small arms optics to the U.S. military. Um, most of the sniper packages wore some form of a loophole tactical optic. Uh, and so I've, I've been able to visit the, the factory there in Beaverton, Oregon, and kind of see just the, the differences between the two product lines. And really it comes down to ruggedization. You know, the difference between a VX6 and a Mark VI really is one's built to take just about anything you can throw at it. One's built to take everything you can throw at it. Um, and I know that the folks that, you know, work on that factory and put the, that line together, they, they realize that every optic they make potentially is somebody's life. Mm-hmm. either saving it or protecting someone else's. So they take that very seriously. Um, but really, that's that's one thing we've seen trickle back down then into the, the consumer market and the hunting world. Things that came in that were military spec, you know, we require this level of waterproofing. We need dials that work this way. Certainly in adjustments and reticles, we're seeing that play into um, the hunting market now. Vortex was great at that. You know, they mm-hmm. brought out um, a, a number of consumer-focused products with what we would call military features. So... Um, Christmas tree reticles, you know, the very busy reticles set off in often mill radian as opposed to the minutes of angle that most Americans or, you know, hunters are used to doing. Um, you know, when it first came out, we were all kind of looking at it going, but, you know, a deer hunter doesn't need a first focal plane optic with a Christmas tree reticle. Well, they still wanted it. And because of that and the education that came along with it, the, the deer hunter became better. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're able to take more accurate shots. People are taking shots they might not have been able to to successfully take before 
Uh, it also kind of led to the explosion of the long-range shooting as well, but that's a different show. Um, but really bringing some of these features that have made the rifles that much more effective in the hands of our military marksmen and snipers. I mean, if, if you're accurately taking a shot there, there's no difference between that and taking an accurate shot on a game animal. So if you can bring those features and those designs into the consumer market at an affordable spot, game on. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and the, the optics, it stretches even further back uh, than, you know, than just like we're talking, you know, Vietnam era snipers and stuff. It goes even all the way back to World War II when we're talking about different optics and how things mm-hmm. have, have been influenced from the military side and then into the, the civilian uh, market. And that's uh, hints at what I brought up in, in the beginning, talking about uh, aircraft sites, aircraft gun sites um, to shotgunning. And that leads us to the NIDAR shotgun site model 47 um maybe the camera will even pick up the crazy reflectiveness off the front of this thing because this is ridiculous um but it it is based off of a a military aviation site um and this is your first reflex site for shotguns so this comes out in 1946 the company had been making things for the military for aircraft and they thought well we can kind of scale that down and and use it on a shotgun you know for duck hunting and dove hunting and and things like that and so you know we tend to think of reflex sites as being a more modern creation Um, and certainly the technology that we have today is very modern uh, but the concept is is 80 years old uh, at this point. You know, there's there's no batteries in this thing. You know, it doesn't light up. It, it runs solely off of mirrors uh, reflecting a white bullseye in there. So you don't have to worry about batteries dying, you know, or, or anything like that. Um, you've you've got this sight that you can put on your shotgun, and now you've got you know you've got the, the, what are they called the donut of death? Mm-hmm. Is that you know <laughs> you've got one of those going all the way back to 1946? Seeing a theme on this show, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, the the camera hopefully caught the glare off that, but what the camera didn't pick up is the weight of this thing. Yes, you know, for for those of us who are used to modern red dots or reflex sights, now I got to see it. Oh, this thing is crazy. It's very cool. Oh yeah, you know, on a shotgun, that's probably not terrible but it's you know it's still noticeable i do feel like i'm playing duck hunt right exactly (laughs) (laughs) you know and they and they just don't make and package things now like they used to then you know the cover for the site this is a piece of sewn brown leather with gold foil embossed nidar company on it you know you you just don't get stuff like that anymore little rubber cover that comes in my delta point pro yeah it's exactly the same only totally different right (laughs) you know (laughs) and there's you know we had talked a little before we started filming you know the concept of you know more trying to standardize the footprint Mm -hmm. for your optics mounts um and we're still working on it we're getting there but we're still working on it but in this era you know there there is no standardization for that you know i'm i'm looking for a shotgun that i'm gonna have that mounted on and i'm gonna have to send it to a gunsmith friend of mine to to properly drill and tap the receiver uh to make it fit Mm -hmm. correctly and then and then that site will belong to that gun you know i can't take it off and, and pop it onto another one like we were you know we we are spoiled enough to to be able to do today you know so uh, you know you're, you're not going to find a, a nidar in the optics section on go wild that you can just <laughs> plop in there you'll find lots of great stuff in the optics section on go wild but a nidar is not one of them no you know <laughs> what, what would this have gone for back in the day 
Uh, it was like $24.75 or something like that, which when you run the inflation on it, it's about 360 bucks. So oh, it's just... actually fairly comparable. Yeah. It's about you know? the same price as the shotgun. You know, well, <laughs> yeah, if, yeah, if, yeah. If you convert everything, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in, in some, you know, the optics have kind of kept up with inflation in, in that regard. You know, for 300 and some odd dollars, you can be into, into a nice optic, you know, and it's the same way for that. So... So we've talked our optics history. Let's let's talk about our firearms history with how things have changed and been influenced from the military side mm-hmm. into the hunting side. Because, Alan, I know you specifically have a gun in your collection that fell victim to this. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a painful story to tell, but I'll try to get through it. We're your support group. Uh, We're thank, here for you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you know, we've talked in the past of how the civilian market, you know, has influenced the military, certainly, with especially bolt actions and precision rifles. But um, in the earlier part of the century, um, the the hunting market specifically was really influenced by the military market, largely through surplus rifles. So as the American military was kind of changing over from bolt action rifles like the Springfield 1904 to the M1 Grand, the M14, and later on, these guns were surplus like crazy which meant they were very inexpensive, which meant a lot of people with, you know, tanned necks would buy them and send them off and have them turn into sporting guns, sporterized, they called it. So then generations later, you've got someone like, I don't know, me, who finds out that his uncle has a Springfield 1904 that he wants to give you, and you're super excited until it shows up in a sporter stock with a scotch-taped-on butt pad, the Mm. barrel chopped off, um rings machined into it by somebody who I think had a power drill and maybe a drill press <laughs> and rattle can black completely unshootable and you're 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 just devastated they cut this cut the rear sights off the whole nine yards it's just just devastated but this happened to hundreds of thousands of Springfields between probably 1945 and 1965 you could buy them dirt cheap out of catalogs yeah. You know, my era, we saw the similar, but there were a lot, a lot of um, communist block guns. I mean, when I was a kid, it seemed like everybody had an SKS or a Mosin Nagandi, the big, you know, 18-mile-long 9130 or the shorter carbine version. Um, you could get them dirt cheap. The ammo was pretty inexpensive. 762 by 39 Ballistically, is not radically different from 3030, so it, it was viable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you could find a find a way to get, you know, a limiter and an SKS to only hold four rounds. But, uh, yeah, there, there was a, a lot of these really classic historical rifles that were converted, and some were done beautifully. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Some of the most beautiful historic custom hunting guns of all time are built off old Mauser actions, which came in the same way. They were military surplus rifles, took off the barrel, took off the stock, took the action and built a hunting rifle around it. So I know you've got uh, got the textbook here on how to do it. Yeah, this is one of the most unfortunate things I've ever purchased in my life. From 1963, the fourth edition of How to Convert Military Rifles. So basically, how to destroy <laughs> uh, a collectible <laughs> firearm that in 1963 wasn't collectible. And this is, this was actually put out by a company uh, that, that sells the parts too, right? So they were very invested in this. And it tells you how to go through and do the different conversions uh, for all of the different kinds of make and model guns you know so we cover the 03 Springfield we cover uh, the the 1917 we're covering all of the German Mausers in here the British Smellies or SMLEs for those of you who are a little more appropriate uh, the Winchester 95s um, just all sorts of stuff uh, Japanese Arasakas you know basically if it was Milserp that you could buy cheap this company and others like it we're going to tell you how to turn that into a deer gun, you know, and, and people did it in droves as Alan said, you know, hundreds of thousands of them because they were dirt cheap. And, 
Uh, but aside from them being dirt cheap, you know, these are guns that a lot of these hunters in, in the 50s, you know, they may have used that gun when they were in the service yeah. in World War II or in Korea, you know. And they knew that platform intimately, mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, they had to. They were trusting their life to that gun uh, on the battlefield. And, and a lot of guys, you know, they they go into the deer woods with their gun. They know that gun really well as their deer gun. So it would make sense that the gun you trusted your life to is a gun that you can trust in the deer woods, too. But you, you know? and I have talked about this in the past, Logan. I mean... In the in the short term, sometimes historical items don't feel historical, right? I remember yes. you telling me yeah. that the, the we did that show on the Hamilton Burr duel, mm -hmm. and you told me those guns were modified later, uh, and you know really didn't seem that significant in the near term, right? And now it blows my mind to think like someone modified those, and you're like, yeah, because it just they were just firearms used in a, a political event. It wasn't something that was seen as significant. Do you exactly. think there's some of that at play here? Like people weren't really looking at it. It was more of a utilitarian view. It was absolutely yeah. utilitarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, guys needed a new deer rifle, and you know, hey, you know, most of most of the Americans, you know, it was in thirty out six. You know, that's a great deer cartridge. You know, um, and and they were cheap, they were plentiful, and there was tons of aftermarket stuff to modify them. You know, there's a whole damn book on them. It's seventy five pages <laughs> of worth of stuff. You know, and 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 then there were other magazine articles. You know, Guns and Ammo and American Riflemen published articles similar to yeah. this of of how to convert your your surplus gun. So guys were inundated with it. You know, it'd be today if you were scrolling through ads online. You know, you you'd see stuff like it was the equivalent. You yeah. know, you you, yeah. you couldn't spit and not hit some Milserp conversion material. It's an odd know. visual, but yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's a, a, this show is nothing but odd visuals, right? I mean, from the four mugs sitting around yeah. the table, it's, it's, we start with odd visual, right? I mean, and that's an influence we haven't really thought about is the cartridge itself. I mean, the 30 out 6 was developed as a military cartridge, sure. but it has evolved into one of the most versatile hunting calibers they make. You know, you can load 110 grains if you want and shoot small game. You can put a 220 in there and go after a moose if you want, and pretty much everything in between. So, you know, what was designed as a military cartridge with kind of really one purpose has become, you know, a ubiquitous cartridge in the field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, and I've, we, we had talked, you know, you've got the, the poor bastardized, sporterized mm -hmm. one, and I've, I've got uh, an 03A3. And he won't trade. <laughs> no, he won't trade. I won't trade. Yeah, I'm such, oh man. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> the worst. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's, and there's a whole group of gunsmiths and collectors and stuff that, uh, they love buying up the Bubba sporterized guns and converting them back yeah. to their military Taking glory. Exactly. And I think, I think that's a noble pursuit, yeah. you know, for, yeah. for a lot of stuff. And, and, uh, uh, I don't have the gunsmithing skills to do things like that, but I think it's really cool that guys are actively going out and, and righting the wrongs of the past. You know, sometimes that's a good idea, sometimes it's not. It hasn't, it hasn't really ended either, though. You know, I mentioned my generation, it was the SKS rifle. My, my father-in-law um, bought a very nice, uh, you know, the Hungarian woodstock with the, the bayonet, folding, folding bayonet and the grenade launcher sights and everything for me for Christmas one year. And my brother-in-law got the one with the, you know, plastic polytech stock, the <laughs> removable magazine that never works, um, the shortened barrel. And it's kind of like, can't have mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got the good one. Right. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still taking perfectly good firearms with a nice little historical feel to them. And, you know, 
well, Americanizing. Are, are we living this all over again with with you know moving into the modern modern sporting rifles, right? Like yep. it's it's a nostalgic yep. feel for something that another generation's familiar with, and yep. they get to use that in the field. Can you talk through some of that transition we're going through right now? Absolutely. You know, it it the modern sporting rifle field. That's we we look at you know the AR fifteen, you know, and and of course the Colt M sixteen for that, and it doesn't get any more tied together yeah. than than that firearm, right? Because when it was introduced, you know the the military was a little hesitant to embrace that, and so when Colt started making them uh, in nineteen sixty three, uh, then in nineteen sixty four, they're taking out full page ads in all of the gun magazines. Um, touting it as the Colt Sporter, your next deer rifle. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and and you and and you look at it, and it's it's what today you know everyone is clutching their pearls and afraid of, you know, mm. it's it's the black polymer furniture, and you know, but it but it's an AR, it's an AR fifteen, yeah. right? And they're calling it the Colt Sporter, and it's your deer rifle. Um, but we're seeing guys you know doing that oh, today. Yeah. That I mean, the AR is is the perfect platform, you know. That's why we call it the modern sporting rifle, right? I mean, you you can get an AR and darn near any caliber and hunt anything with it right i mean i mean it it really took off in the varmint world at first you know because you're talking high volume fire small caliber so you know prey dog hunters coyote hunters loved the ar platform super lightweight super adjustable but as you know the 30 caliber became more and more available you know the ar10s became a little less expensive more more people made them it became a more viable option for deer and it goes right back to what logan was talking about after world war ii You've got so many Americans have bought the MSR over years that they're just comfortable with it. You have so many veterans that, again, have trained, you know, to use this firearm. They're comfortable with it. Law enforcement's very familiar. It's just, and it's a well-designed rifle. Yeah. You know, like it or love it, it's an ergonomically really well-designed rifle. I think the way it handles recoil, too, is especially like youth hunters, Mm -hmm. you know, to be shooting something that is, is not as much recoil. As a thirty out six, like it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and sure. you, you look at some companies like Savage have, um, uh, I forget the the model name, but they've got a rifle that comes in youth configuration. But when you buy it, it's got the adult stock in the box, so they can grow into it. Well, That's so cool. It is, but with an AR, you just go click. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you put the butt stock <laughs> right, in two right. positions, and now it's your youth <laughs> rifle. You need to, you want to use it, pull the stock back out. Yeah. So it it for a one rifle. Um, platform it makes a ton of sense and then you know you had nemo come out with a 300 win mag it became a big game viable option nowadays i think everybody who makes an ar probably has a 308 version or even more growing these days is the 65 creedmoor version which isn't really a big jump from the 308 platform so it's kind of an engineering easy but um yeah it's 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 not uncommon used to be kind of rare to see an ar at the deer check station now it's it's kind of getting almost the other way at least where we're at i feel like some of this is a a flavor of you know how easy it is to follow along with with some of your heroes now you know a tim kennedy a jack Mm -hmm. carr jack carr is great for you know his books if you're a gearhead Mm -hmm. you get to see all in the weeds to the point a lot of times i'm like i have no idea what he's talking about (laughs) Uh, i I look up so much stuff when i'm reading i'm always like driving or running or something while i'm listening (laughs) to the book and i'm like i i just gonna accept that that was some type of scope that i have no idea what he's talking about right (laughs) but i i I see uh i think there's a lot of fan base kind of coming out of Mm -hmm. uh because as you kind of started off a lot of this has become accessible you can have a, a more civilian version but inspired by you know what what these guys like James Reese from from the the books are using right mm-hmm. and it kind of lets you um kind of have some fun and I think that's what we didn't mention the AR15 platform is just fun right yeah, like there's an element of that that like if you, people that 
are so against it have probably never gone out to the range and seen what what how much fun you can have safely mm-hmm. right like i think yep. there, there's an element of that too but i mean i definitely think you know being able to follow along with a lot of these guys who have gone on to be very well known after their their military careers and seeing the gear that they have and i can have some of that for honestly not a crazy price yep. right like it's very attainable absolutely and we're, we're seeing this now, um, you know, the chassis guns, if you go back to 20-some oh, years ago, the, the M2010 sniper package was kind of the first chassis-based gun in the military. Um, then the bench rest community kind of jumped on, and the precision rifle community kind of took on it. We're starting to see hunting-based chassis guns now. I, I was going to ask you guys about this, because mm-hmm. I, I bought a Christensen a few mm-hmm. years ago, um, the modern precision rifle. It's got the, you know, collapsible stock, yep. Yep. and... Is that coming, like, what's the inspiration for, because SIG's got the cross, you mm-hmm. know, very similar uh, concepts, uh, but but they're a bolt action. Um, so, like, what's been the inspiration for that wave? Because it, se- it does seem like it's picking up and hunting. For the accuracy, they're very mm-hmm. compact and lightweight to, to be able to yep. carry. But what's your all's take on, like, where did that move come from? Yeah, that's a great question. And But but so many more companies are jumping out. Like you mentioned, you know, SIG's got the cross. I was just uh, at, at an industry event a couple of weeks ago. Now it was longer than that. Time flies. A couple months ago now. Um, but Aero Precision, you mm-hmm. know, that is an AR company, is known for ARs, has come out with a bolt-action rifle. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think... Nosler, 75 years of an ammunition company, as traditional and conservative a company as it gets in our space, last year launched a carbon-based um, or a carbon-fiber chassis-based rifle, the uh, Compact Carbon Hunter, the CCH folding stock. And it's, it's the wildest looking thing, and it's from Nosler. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the big push with that is that there is much more emphasis on big public land hunting, get out there, get lost, go far. Mm-hmm. And so these the rifles are being made to accommodate that going in a pack that doesn't yeah. take as much You don't space. have to have it on the outside of your bag anymore. I can right. literally collapse that stock down, and I could sit it in my bag and take it with me. Now I still generally am using my whitetail bag, got the booty that I put it on just because it's easier. But, I mean, if you were trying to, like, you weren't, you knew you weren't going to need the gun for your walk-in because, like, you're out west – I mean, it is a nice gun to have. You shot yeah. one. You shot one of the Christiansons too. I, th- I saw yes. you post about it on Go Wild. Yep. Um, they're they're amazing. Oh, I they mean, are. Oh my god. They're absolutely amazing. I like you said. I was shooting one because that's how I found out you had one because <laughs> you saw my post. And yeah, I was in uh, six five PRC. Uh, I was hitting targets repeatedly at twelve hundred yards. Yeah. Um, Wait, which... Is this the time to mention that I missed a deer at fifty yards? With mine? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, your dope was dialed for a thousand. Yeah. So uh, you know. I, I, I will. I was. It was my first uh, shot of the deer in a saddle, if that helps. But okay. yeah. So, but I, I, second shot got him. So you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think there's a Things certain happen. right. <laughs> there's a certain question of okay, I'm cutting the handle off my toothbrush. I'm scraping the rubber off or, or armor off my spotting scope to save weight. You know, I'm doing all the things Jim Shockey tells me to do before we pack up, and then I'm grabbing my you know 12 pound <laughs> rifle optic combo and slinging it on. <laughs> You know, if we can shave some weight there and actually improve a performance at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. nothing against beautiful woodstock guns, but they don't like moisture so much. Yep. Yep. So carbon fiber doesn't really seem to care. Yep. You know, if I can fold that stock, like you said, tuck it straight into the backpack yeah. so my optic ain't getting all banged up as I'm climbing around, all the better. Uh, I, and plus, it's it's a new gear. I mean, you know, we're, we're gizmo gear people. So, right. you know, if it's shiny carbon fiber... Yeah, we're on board. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And there's so, yeah, there's just so much of that that is all intertwined. And, you know, and the, this entire topic, you know, on, on the surface, doesn't necessarily look like the two go together, you know, military history and hunting history. But 
I'll be damned if they're not totally linked. You well, know? isn't it? It's kind of funny too, though, because I think uh, I've, I've read some. You know, uh, well, you see this in movies a lot too. But um, I think originally a lot of the guys that ended up being snipers way back in the day were, you know, grew up hunting though, right? Sure. So it's like it's yep. always been intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it goes further back than that. Your first, you know, recruits into the volunteer army in yeah. the Revolutionary War were guys that showed up with their hunting rifles. Yeah. Yep. And we didn't fight war the way we were supposed to because we fought like hunters. We mm-hmm. hid in the woods. We took shots from concealment, and then we got the heck out of there. Well, Simon you know, Kenton. I, I told. I I don't know if you're going to the Frasier, but I, I've been to the Frasier since we talked about it last show, and they have right. a big uh, exhibit right now on Lewis and Clark, and it was talking about how mm-hmm. this this expedition was going to be uh, is going to really raise your profile if you did it. So they had all these, you know, uh, esteemed politicians who wanted to join, and they're like, no, 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 we mm. want the farm boys. Yeah. You know, we want the guys <laughs> yeah. who <It's> illiterate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, and so they took nine people from Kentucky with them who were just, you know, uh, rugged hunters uh, who knew how to survive and skin a buck. You know, that was right. that was what they needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, like you said, going even into, you know, military uh, times, I mean, that those skill sets that you learn in hunting certainly are a great kickstart to military training. Absolutely. Yep. So, Alan, what kind of stuff uh, has closed in the past week or so on gumbroker.com that would be of interest. And if you can tie this back to donuts for a third <laughs> reference, that would be awesome. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the AR platform rifle, the modern sporting, or modern sporting rifle. And prices are usually tied to your manufacturer. You know, you've got your value brands, you've got your commodity brands, you've got your premium brands. And certainly one of those premium brands for years has been Knight's Armament. Mm-hmm. Um, Trey Knight makes a fantastic product. Um, you know, the SR-25 is kind of the gold standard it's really the sem- it's the SAS. It's the semi-automatic sniper system. Um, it's the gold standard for 30 cal ARs. So those usually go at a good premium. Now we're talking about hunting, and while 308 762 is certainly a you know viable hunting cartridge, um, you know 65 Creedmoor is currently the hot trend. Um, so when we get a combination of a Knight's Armament SR25 chambered in 65 Creedmoor, hmm. we expect to see an interesting auction. Um, and we had one close off last week, and it was surprising, but not for the reason I expected. Okay. Um, closed at $6,500, which for a Knight's SR25 actually isn't that bad of a price to begin with. It's a little on the high end for a basic 30 cal, but uh, for 6.5, that feels like whoever bought that had got a pretty good value for it. Right. So that's the SR25 is on my list of grail guns as well. Is it? So, yeah. And, and again, because of our heroes, you know, you see the, the pictures of Travis Haley on the rooftop. You see Chris Kyle with the semi-auto, and it's always the yeah. Knight's Armament. It's that iconic look. you got to have the right color tan paint. you got to have <laughs> the right can on it. But, um, you know, you just you kind of want that. Because even though it's not the right one, you still feel like you are somehow connected to that bit of history. Yep, Absolutely. I'll tie it back. Some of us enjoy a few too many donuts to actually look like these these guys. True. So, so if we, we get the gear, guns, we can just at least kind of look like them when we hold the gun. There you uh, go. There we go. Yeah, I brought it back around. Trying to shave weight on everything except your waistline. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> the <that's> easiest <laughs> thing to trim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, we're running short on time, but I appreciate you guys tuning in to the podcast. Uh, make sure you're logging your time and go wild. Uh, make sure you leave us a review on whatever platform you're checking out the show. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the show. It, it means a lot to all of us that, that you've tuned in and you've made it this far to the end of the episode. We appreciate all of you being here uh, and guys around the table with me. I appreciate y'all being here um, and talking about all sorts of history and donuts and all sorts of good things. So, again, thanks so much, guys, uh, for for joining us on this episode of the no low ballers podcast we will be right back here next week and we hope to see you there as well